Hebrews chapter 3 is where we are today. Hebrews 3, we're going to look at verses 7 through 19 this morning. We've been walking through the book of Hebrews for a number of weeks now, and so uh, now we find ourselves starting from chapter 1, verse 1, now to chapter 3 uh, in verse 7 through 19. So ready to open this and and, uh, get the party started, right? Uh, Already a great morning of of musical worship, but the worship does not end with the music, right? We, We are entering into another avenue of worship as we look at the Word together uh, this morning. I don't know what comes to mind when I say the words, uh, that, that phrase, never forget. You probably hear that phrase, never forget, every once in a while. Uh, maybe around, um, not, maybe not holidays, but days of commemoration in our culture. We use that word, those phrase, that phrase, never forget. It often, that phrase is sort of latched onto following some society-altering event in history. It could be some tragedy, it could be some triumph, but there's some reason that we usually latch on and say that phrase, uh, never forget. The phrase is meant to be a warning, right? It's a warning from the past to the present. Does that make sense? That phrase, never forget, is a warning. It's a warning from the past to the present. We are now to the point that there are some 21-year-old adults who were born after the events of 9-11. Think about that. I just rocked some of your world, didn't I? I mean, it's crazy to think about that we're now 21 plus years past events that maybe in your mind, in my mind, feel like yesterday in some ways, right? And that's one of those events in history that we latch on that phrase, never forget. Never forget isn't just something we say to remember the events in history, right? It's not just about being mindful. There's something that goes along with that, and that is that it's a warning to live today in light of what occurred all those years ago, right? That's the, the principle in mind. Never forget, live today in light of a warning for what has happened in the past. Now that may mean, especially as we think about 9-11, it may be something like, Never forget meaning we need to be people of gratitude. It may mean we need to be, as a society, people that are unified, not divided. You guys remember the immediate days and months after 9-11. What a unified nation. It's, it's crazy to consider the, the difference now, right? Never forget. Maybe unification. Maybe that's what comes to mind. Or maybe uh, talking about national defenses. Never forget that that can happen. And so we need to be people that are defensive now. And the warning is against naivete, right? Against that phrase of, well, it can never happen to us, right? Well, it, that won't happen again, and that follows with never forget, because it's a warning, right? It's a warning to the present from the past that it can happen again. It can happen today. It's a naive, or it's a warning against naivete. Live today with perspective gained by a retrospective, looking backwards in order to look forwards. What we're going to see in our passage this morning in Hebrews is that same similar warning, a retrospective perspective, looking back in order to look forward, to live today in light of what we learn in the warning of those that came before us. And that could not be more true of what we see in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19 this morning. So let's look at it together, okay? Hebrews 3, starting in verse 7. And I'm going to start to read, but I want to pause for just a second. The first few words here that say, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. I'll keep going in just a second. But I want to point out something real quick that I'm not going to mention anymore in our service today. And that is that the author of Hebrews doesn't say it is written. He doesn't say it's in our history books. It's in the Bible. It doesn't say that. He says the Holy Spirit, not said, says. I say that to remind you that when we open this book, God speaks. Okay? That's what he's saying. He's a pastor. He's a preacher, this guy that's writing this book. He is a preaching 
pastor of people writing a letter of a sermon, and he's reminding us, the readers, when you open this book, God speaks. What a great reminder. Let's check it out. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Verse 19 then says, So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Last week we saw a comparison in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3. And not to go back there too much, but the comparison was between Moses and Jesus. Faithful Moses versus faithful Jesus. Not putting him down, not putting down Moses, but saying as wonderful and as great as Moses is, Jesus is even greater. And we spent a lot of time there, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. But there was a comparison made, Moses and Jesus. This week, a comparison sort of piggybacks off of that. And the comparison isn't of Jesus and Moses. Instead, the comparison is between Jesus' followers and Moses' followers. Okay? You go from the leaders to the followers. See, the Exodus generation, those that were under the care of Moses, they witnessed wonders of God. But eventually, they proved faithless and drifted from God. And so the comparison is, what about you? They saw all these amazing things God did, and they fell apart. They drifted away. So the writer is writing to the church saying, you who are under the care of Christ, what about you? What are you going to do? Will you repeat the pattern? Will you drift? Or will you hold fast? This is the second of several warning passages that we see in the book of Hebrews, which I think are going to be easier to apply than some of the others we've looked at. But the comparison is endurance and faith versus hardness of heart, unbelief, and disobedience. So what I'm going to provide today are just a few, maybe like just sort of an outline if you're taking notes to help you kind of track where we're going with this thing, okay? So as we think about a, a retrospective perspective, the first thing that we need to see is a, an example as we look back, a past example. And we see this in this people group called uh, the Israelites, okay? So a past example. So we, as we begin looking at verse 7, we look back, all right? And a, a copy from uh, Psalm 95 is what we're going to see, a little um, excerpt. So It says in verse 7, therefore, which again is just coming off the heels of verse 6, which says, uh, if indeed we hold fast. So if indeed we hold fast, therefore, let's not not hold fast. Let's look at an example of what it looks like not to do that. So therefore, he says, let us hold fast. As the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice. Now, what's going to follow in verses 7 through 11, as I said, are verses, in fact, it's kind of weird. It's from Psalm 95. It's also verses 7 through 11, which is very easy to remember. But Psalm 95 is quoted. Now, the psalm itself 
is a retrospection. Again, that psalm was written maybe in the time of David or around there. That's way after the events of Moses and the Israelites. And so even if you were to go back and look at Psalm 95, it itself is looking way back into their past and saying the same message. Consistent with the message of Hebrews is for the present generation, when Psalm 95 was written, to learn from the past generation. Now, I don't want to assume any information. Maybe you've seen the movie Prince of Egypt, and that's as far as your understanding of the Exodus goes. I don't know. Or maybe Charlton Heston's Ten Commandments, and that's as far as your understanding goes. That may be the case, and maybe that captures the big principles there, and maybe that's enough for this sermon. I don't know. But I don't want to assume that information, and so I want to explain to you who this audience is that Psalm 95 is referring to, and now that Hebrews 3 is referring to. Who is this generation, and why is it such a big deal that we learn from them? Well, in short, Again, this letter written to uh, a Jewish audience, right, S scattered into Greek areas, but a Jewish audience, they would know their history. They would know the history of the Israelite people. And so, this generation that he's referring to here is the generation of the greatest suffering, the greatest plight, and also the greatest salvation, okay? Slavery in Egypt is what's being called into question here. The greatest of bondage that this people had ever known, and yet, as a result, the greatest experiencers of salvation before Jesus. It's a never-forget generation, right? So as the author of Hebrews is writing, again, I said this last week, 1,200 years after these events in the Exodus, 1,200 years, writing way after those things, they still are basically reminiscing and saying, never forget. Lest we forget, let us never forget. They were in bondage in Egypt. God sent a messenger named Moses, and Moses stepped onto the scene and said, okay, God has appointed me as the messenger to, to see to it that you guys are freed from slavery. So he went to Pharaoh, the, the, the king, the, the master, the ruler of the land, and said that famous phrase that you probably do know from the movies, which is, let my people go, right? That was the message. Let him go, or else God will intervene. Did he let him go? No, he didn't. What happened? God intervened. And so this people that were subject to great suffering, God intervened and poured out plagues on Egypt, on their captors. He liberated them, freed them from the most powerful empire on earth. In fact, as they were leaving, Pharaoh changed his mind. He had let them go, changed his mind, and said, we're going to chase them down and bring them back or just do worse than just kill them. And as he's chasing them now, they get to the Red Sea, and maybe you know what happens next. This people group, listen, this is so important. This people group that we're going to see are rebels. They stood on the bank of the Red Sea with a powerful army breathing down their necks while they watched God part the sea in front of them so that they could escape on dry land. And then they looked back as that same sea became a watery grave for their pursuers. Great plight, great salvation. And yet they were lawless and they received his voice, were given his law. They were without food and woke up to daily bread that rained from the God who provided for them manna. They were wandering lost, and God guided them in the desert as a pillar of fire and pillar of cloud, and yet they took for granted his favor and shook their fists at him. Never forget, they would say, this generation. You see, there was never a generation or a group of people who saw God work wonders more than this generation of people. And there was never a more rebellious and faithless generation than this one. Isn't that crazy to think about? Those that had every reason to believe hardened their hearts and went astray. This is the warning. Never forget. So when we read now in verses, the rest of verse 7 and also through verse 11, read now the warning in context, okay? 
Today, if you hear his voice, if you hear his voice, he says, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Think about all the amazing things that they'd seen, and yet they hardened their hearts. How about you? You don't do that. You've seen God do amazing things. You don't harden your hearts as in the day of the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness where they wandered for 40 years, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, he says, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray. Don't miss the word always. Don't miss the word always. They always go astray in their hearts. What a, what a weighty statement. They always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. Again, this is back for the Exodus generation. They shall not enter my rest. That word rest in scripture refers metaphorically to God's safety, his security, his salvation. Their generation would not cross the Jordan River into the land of promise, but their children would. You see, never forget is a sad retrospection of past faithlessness, but it's also a present warning for present faithfulness. And it's so important that we understand this. That generation wasn't ignorant of God. This is very important. That generation wasn't ignorant of God. For all intents and purposes, they were church people. Do you see the comparison I'm trying to make? They weren't ignorant of the things of God. They had seen God work. They'd been in a religious, if you want to call it that, environment, a God-influenced environment. They saw and noticed that the author's warning then in verse 12 is not for unchurched heathens. It's for, as he says in verse 12, to take care brothers. And the translation can be sisters too, brothers and sisters. Take care those that call yourselves Christians. He's not warning of the heathens in the street. He's warning of us, those in the sanctuary. It's for you. And so the second thing that I want to see in this retrospective perspective is a present warning. Guys, and don't miss that word. You stumbled into this room today, and maybe your mind isn't really ready for something as serious as what we're about to talk about, okay? I don't use the word warning lightly. This is very important. When we open this word, God speaks, okay? What we've seen in verses 10 and 11, you look back at them. I was provoked with that generation. They always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. They shall not enter my rest. You see the, the emphasis of they, 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 but in verses 12 and 13 and 14, it changes from they to you. And these yous, they drop like hammers. Look at verses 12 through 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you. See the warning. Church people, just like them. Beware yourself. <laughs> You're not above them. You're not greater than they, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. What a weighty thing to say to Christian people, right? An evil heart, he says. Unbelieving those that call yourselves Christians, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now, there's a lot of instructions there in verses 12, 13, and 14. We're going to come back to those. But he ends this chapter continuing the warning so we're not going to pause and apply that yet. But I want you to see, we cannot overlook that the warning is for, as it says in verse 12, any of you. 
That's what it says, right? Any of you, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. A warning for any of you, us, to drift and leave the faith. It's addressed to professing Christians. Again, in our culture, it's, profess, it's, it's addressing to church members, guys. The warning is for church members. And I need you to hear this. The author's warning is that eternal rest, please hear this, salvation, eternal rest, is not achieved by lineage, being born into a Christian home. doesn't matter who your parents are. That's not the way the eternal rest is achieved. They were Israelites. They were people of God, and they didn't get it. It's not achieved by a religious background. Israel had seen wonders and heard God's voice. You may have heard a million sermons. That is not the way that eternal rest is achieved. It's not based on some event in your history. They had been recipients of the favor of God, manna from heaven. They had seen and felt the blessings of God. They didn't enter the rest. That rest is not achieved. But where you came from, who raised you, how many good things that you've done, how many times you've been in these seats. The warning is for you. He goes on in verses 15 through 19 to sort of unpack that. He says, as it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For, listen to this, who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? Who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those that saw God do amazing things and rescued them from a physical plight, a physical danger? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Wasn't it our people? Wasn't it our ancestors they're saying? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were made, they were unable to enter because of I want you to see this word as it falls heavily, unbelief. The author has described the error of the Exodus generation using a few words. Three times he's used the words hardness of heart. One time he's used the words going astray. Three times he's used the, the idea of rebellion. One time he's used the word sin. One time he's used the word disobedience. And he's described the error of the Exodus generation using those several words, but he's honed in on one word, unbelief unbelief. We see it in verse 12, which is the warning. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelief heart, an unbelieving heart. And then he staples it on the end with verse 19. We see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. You see, it's like this. All those things, hardness of heart, going astray, rebellion, sin, disobedience, all of them sort of are in a package in an envelope that is called unbelief. Unbelief is the envelope that contains them all. So what is unbelief? Well, I'm going to just begin with saying this is not merely an intellectual idea. Unbelief is the failure to trust God and believe in his promises. Unbelief is the failure to trust God and believe in his promises. I'll say it one more time. Unbelief is the failure to trust God and believe in his promises. Key here is that biblical belief is not strictly intellectual. It is functional, right? It's not simply intellectual. It is functional. It's not a matter of believing in your mind, uh, I believe the events of Scripture actually happened. It's not just a matter of believing those things up here. Don't you know that Satan knows that those things happened? Intellectually, he knows the truth, right? Does that mean that he believes? Not a chance. He does not believe by faith in Christ Jesus because we're not simply talking about an intellectual belief, but rather a functional faith, a functional belief, in scripture. I'll put it this way. If you truly fear authority, 
and believe that there is much at stake for an error or a transgression, then you are on high alert. You try your very best not to make an error. I'll give you a real world example for that, and this is one that always comes to mind. You act differently when a police car is behind your vehicle, right? Don't you? You drive a little more cautiously, unless you're just like a thrill seeker, and you're like, let's just see if they can catch me. You don't do that, right? You drive differently. You know why? Because you believe in consequences for error, right? You believe in the consequences of that transgression in that instance. You know that there is a clear and present danger. There's a clear and present penalty for waywardness. See, if we believe that there is much at stake for an error, we are on high alert. We try our very best not to make an error. And even if we do make an error, then we quickly make an internal and external commitment to strive for change. You may be watching your speedometer like a hawk, and suddenly you go over and you're like, oh shoot, I hope he didn't see that. I'm gonna change, I'm gonna gonna go back down, right? Because though an error may be made, you quickly respond and say, I believe that there are consequences for that. I'm gonna change it. And we believe with more fervency that there is a penalty for your speeding than there is a penalty for transgressing a holy God. Unbelief. If we believed, we would be different. I know that because you are different when you believe that the law is behind you. There is no difference than a holy God being over you. But when we sin against a holy God, we simply say, in the moment, I don't believe that's a big deal. I don't believe anything will happen. Do you see it? It's not a matter of intellect. It's a matter of functionality. Functionally, it does not matter what you believe intellectually. Functionally, when we sin against the Holy God, we say, I don't believe in him. And it's not just me drawing a hard line there. The author of Hebrews draws a hard line there. Unbelief is not an inability to understand. I heard it was said, a pastor said this. Unbelief is not an inability to understand. It is an unwillingness to trust. I'll say that again. Unbelief is not an inability to understand. It is an unwillingness to trust. And I'm, I'm not making this up. I mean, we see this in scripture. In John 12, verse 37, Jesus said this. He said, though, it says, though he, John says this, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Did they believe that Jesus was a miracle worker? Absolutely. They would not have followed him physically if he was not a miracle worker. They believed intellectually. They saw it happen, but they did not believe in his message, right? Because the same ones that were wowed by the miracles chanted, crucify him. Should sound familiar to the the Exodus generation. The same ones that saw the miracles said, attack with him. Because again, unbelief is not an inability to understand. They understood. We understand. It is an unwillingness to trust and submit and surrender to his message, his design. See, the Exodus generation murmured against God, grumbled against God, grew discontent with his salvation, his provision, and they whined. Please listen to this. They whined for the pleasures of Egypt after being rescued from them. They grumbled to go back to Egypt because at least there we had meat to eat. They grumbled for the physical filling that they did not believe that God would give them. They went back, and, or they wanted to go back to their captor 
Because as they would say, because at least in bondage we had this. At least in bondage we had a bed. At least in bondage we had meat to eat. This is the epitome of unbelief. And we do that every time that we sin. It sounds like us wanting to go back to our captor, sin. Sin enslaves you when you come into this world. We spend eternity apart from God because of the bondage of sin. And God rescues us from condemnation. And you know what we do each day? We say, oh, but I still want to taste. That's unbelief. It's saying, I know what you have for me, God, but this is so sweet. It's lack of belief. It's unbelief. It's failure to obey the authority and saying, I don't really believe that he has what's best for me. I don't trust him. And just like Israel, seeking filling elsewhere because God's way isn't good enough. And you are bombarded by this. We talked about this Wednesday night in Colossians. Every day you are bombarded, being persuaded to see an empty space in your life that this world and your flesh tell you that you deserve to have filled. That's what advertising campaigns are built upon, is seeing a void that's not really there. Don't you know that you'll, you'll feel so much more full if you have that car? You'll feel so much more full if your TV was a little bit bigger. You'd be so much more full if you had uh, this, this thing over here that will make you satisfied. You'll be so much more full if you have as many likes as that girl. You'll be so much more full if you have that social status that that person has. And you say, man, I'm just so sick of being a loser. I'm so sick of not having friends. I would be so much more full if I just had this thing. I would be so much more full if I had this wardrobe, if I could afford these clothes, if I could have this surgery. I'd be so much more fulfilled in life if I was just happy with the way that I look. If I had that device, if I had that relationship, if I had that spouse, that's what, they can be happy, why can't I be? That's the whining of Israel. Forgotten and recycled. I know God says this, but I want this. And I don't trust that he's going to give me what I need, and so I'm gonna seek sin to get it. Unbelief. Guys, sin overpromises but underdelivers every single time. It overpromises and underdelivers every single time. That's why it says in verse 13, the second half of verse 13 says, that none of you may be hardened, listen, by the deceitfulness, don't miss that word, deceitfulness of sin. It's like salt water, and you're famished. And so you said, oh, here's water. And, and God says, that will not satisfy you. Oh, but it's water. And you chug it, and it only leaves you more thirsty because it is over-promising and under-delivering. It is unbelief dressed up in little vain promises of fulfillment. That's why he says the word hardened. And I'm not going to go a long way here, but this illustration of hardened. And Sam said he's, twice already, he talks about the, the softness of heart. I think Chris also said the softness of heart. This is a very biblical principle because the warning is against a hardened heart. Calluses should be the image. When you're learning to play guitar, not that I would know because no, no chance. Uh, when you're learning to play guitar, it hurts at first, right? I'm assuming. Could someone nod and tell me if that, it is? All right. I used to have a bass guitar back when I was in high school because that was really cool. <laughs> really cool. But anyway, so when you're learning to play guitar, it hurts your fingers. But there comes a time when what builds up? Calluses. And that hardness gets it to where you get to the point where you can't even feel it. And that's a good thing in that instance because you don't want to feel 
that digging into your, your fingers, your senses. You want to be able to harden it, right? Or maybe you're a runner, and your feet are very tender at first when you begin running, but as you run and run and run, maybe you practice and train, you build calluses, and where it's like, this isn't hurting my feet as bad, because you've built something that is withstanding the pressure, okay? The stabbing, the jabbing, it's withstanding it. See, the warning in Scripture is, if we receive a warning, if God targets our hearts and says, correct it, turn, repent, believe, withstand, be fulfilled in me, and we harden and harden and harden and harden. You know what happens? We come into this room, and you don't even feel anything because your heart's hardened. That's why we pray for softened hearts because it's easy to sit in here in a religious environment, see all the great things that God has done. We're going to see that in just a few moments and not even feel anything. And I'm not talking about emotionalism where you're deceived by your own feelings. I'm not talking about that. When there is something in front of you that honors God and you don't want to feel anything, that's not manipulation of your emotions. That is rejection of the Spirit of God. Feelings are not bad. Go read the Psalms. They are moved by feelings, motivated by feelings. We must be people that feel. Otherwise, we will be hardened heart. Calloused, insensitive to touch God's touch. We want to be sensitive to temptation, sensitive to seeing vain promises, the overpromising of sin as vain, sensitive to the drift of our hearts. But we also need to have an offensive strategy. This is what we're going to see next. We've seen a past promise, <clears throat> we've seen a present warning, and now we see a future plan. We see a future plan. As I've said, this letter is unorthodox because it's not just a letter to churches, it's a sermon, really. The way that it's structured is like a sermon. Um, this passage is our author preaching. In verses 7 through 11, he's, he's introducing his text, just like I've done. I've given you my text, right? I've given you explanation of my text, and then we will try to apply that text. That's exactly what he does. In verses 7 through 11, he says, let's look back at Psalm 95. This is our text. In verses 12 through 19, he gives explanation of his text. And then built into verses 12 and 13, are his steps of application. And we could also add verse 14 on there. 12 through 14 are his steps of application. So let's look at verses 12 through 14 real quick. It says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We pause right there. You see, the author isn't writing so that the reader will ask, have I been hardened and as a result lost God's rest? Is that, is that me? It's not, listen, he doesn't write so that the reader will doubt or be paranoid. The reason he writes is, as he says in verse 12, lest any of you, warning, be awake, be aware. It's a warning, not a reason to worry and be afraid and be paranoid. He's writing before the fact, right? He's saying, pay attention, as he's already said before. He's not writing to ignite worry. He's writing to ignite endurance and action. And so I think that our application here is very clear as we talk about igniting endurance. Three things. Number one is to take care. Number one is to take care. <clears throat> and I don't mean that farewell. Take care. That's not what he's saying, right? Take care. He's already used a couple of synonyms for that in this personal commitment. He says take care here. 
But just last week in chapter three, verse six, he used the words, hold fast, cling tightly, right? Hold on, he says. Back in chapter two, verse one, in the first warning passage, he said, pay attention, right? Which is more than just looking up. It's paying attention and being aware of what's happening around. The verb here for take care, it means literally, check this out, to see physically in order to produce a non-physical result. Take care. See, understand, be aware, and as a result of being aware and taking care, it will incite some sort of an internal response. External stimuli produce an internal response. It'd be like this. This is what take care means. If I were uh, to see you chewing on a pen, you know what I would do? Make a mental note. I'd say, never lend that person my pens. Ever, 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 right? That's what I would do. Because what I've done is I've, I've taken a, an external stimulus. What if, I've, if you've been doing that, I haven't noticed, I promise. I'm not targeting anybody in this room. I, was just, I thought about that last night, and I was like, that's a good example. But listen, if I see in anybody chewing a pen, I would say, don't, don't lend that person a pen. Because what I've done is I've taken an external physical stimulus, and it's warranted an internal committed response. You see what I'm saying? External stimulus producing a, an internal non-physical response. It means to carry to the internal what is seen externally so that a person can take the needed action, whether it means respond, beware, be alert. But in context, it carries with it a heightened sense of urgency, danger. Look around, take it in. There's a danger among you. One commentator says, there is no attitude more dangerous for the Christian than that of unconcern and complacency. There is no attitude more dangerous for the Christian than of unconcern and complacency. And I, listen, I really hesitated to say this because I don't want to be misunderstood. That makes you look up and be like, oh, what's he going to say? We celebrate the truth, because it is the truth. We celebrate the truth of once saved, always saved. Truth, okay? Hear me. Please hear me accurately. Don't misrepresent me. We celebrate the truth of once saved, always saved. But ironically, at the same time, such a phrase lulls us into apathy, laziness, and as a result, vulnerability, the runner of this race of endurance. We say, well, it's in the bag. And so we get lazy and we get complacent and we say, well, once saved, always saved. And so I can check off the box of glory and say, now let's just go have a chill life. Incompatible with Scripture. It's a race of endurance. You see, those who are truly saved, always, will not take their salvation for granted and lay back with eternity in the bag, but instead, as Philippians 2.12 says, will work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Some of you guys here are so convinced that you handled that prayer way back then, you handled that baptism way back then, years back, and now you are divisive, hurtful, lazy, complacent, extremely apathetic. You put your behind in a seat. You don't give a rip about what the pastor says. You, sing, you, might, you don't even sing the songs. You're just a body 
and you think that because that thing happened back then, you're good. Incompatible with Scripture. Incompatible. But once saved, always saved. No, hold on. That's not what it says. Yes, those of us that are truly in Christ will forever be, praise be to Jesus. But the warning is against those that believe they may be. But in that day we'll say, oh, but Lord, was I not there? Was I not in the seat? And Jesus may say, depart from me, I never knew you. I'm not saying it. The Holy Spirit says. There's a personal commitment that we take in this life. And clinging to the phrase, once saved, always saved, as beautiful a truth as it is, praise Jesus. Ironically, it can lull you and leave you as a sheep for slaughter. The wolves that prey. Hope I'm not misrepresented there. Praise God for preserving us to the end for those that are truly being preserved. But there is a great warning here for us. The second thing is a mutual commitment. There's a personal commitment to take care. There's a mutual commitment to exhort one another. Exhort one another. This is a measure of prevention, just like the other one. You don't want to fall away. You don't want to, you want to heed the warning. You don't want to harden your heart. You don't want to go astray. Okay, take care. That's what he says. That's the prevention. The second thing, though, is not just a personal commitment to be taking care, but a second one is, is a mutual commitment, one of exhorting one another. This is what he says in uh, verse 12. Let's look at it again. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Again, the warning is for people that are in the sanctuary. Leading you to fall away from the living God, 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see that, right? The measure of prevention is a community surrounding you that exhorts you. The word there for exhortation may be different in your translation. It's literally the word that we get the word paraclete from. The Spirit of God is the helper, paraclete, right? It's where we get that word from. It's two kind of uh, sounds in Greek that are put together, para and kaleo. It means para, which is alongside of, and kaleo would be to call out or to invite or to besiege or whatever. It means a call, a beg, a warning, an encouragement, a comfort, a correction from being uh, beside, right? Up close and personal. In other words, it means somebody in your business. A paraclete is, is in your business. Close. Para, that phrase, again, meaning beside. It's where we get the word parallel. Lines that are close, that are beside, running in the same direction. It's where we get the phrase paramedic. You know what that means? It's a medical professional that is close by. Someone that you want up in your business, right? Really close. That's a paramedic. Now, if they're in your business for your good, then a parakaleo. Someone that calls you out, really close by, in your business, is more vital than a paramedic. Church community is not just a recommendation. It is a lifeline for the believer. That's why we do more than just this. You notice that when we do this, you're all facing the same direction. Right? How can we parakaleo? How can we be in each other's business, call out, correct, warn, encourage, comfort, bless, if we're all facing the same direction. That'll make no sense. So we have things like gathering for refresh on Wednesday nights where we sit around a table 
we face one another and we're in each other's business. Come, be part of that. You want to be part of the fellowship? That's not just our name, that's our purpose. You want to be part of exhorting one another? Do more than this. It's not just a recommendation, it is an instruction. It is a precaution, right? That's why we have Sunday school. A lot of your Sunday school classes, you face each other. The reason is because you're trying to build community with one another. Spend some time even before the Bible study to, to visit and to get to know one another and spend time with each other. You should be in a Sunday school class. Not just for your intellect, but for your soul. That you may build community with one another. There's a Sunday school class for every single one of you guys. And that community matters. That's why we have these men's and women's ministries that we're starting. We're not just doing it so that we can have social clubs. You can go get a social club anywhere. You can get on Facebook and meet up with some people that all like to sew and knit or ride bicycles or whatever you want to do. That's not why we do community. We do community because we need community. We need exhortation. We need people in our lives that are para, close, and calling us out and encouraging us. Believers should gather together to call, warn, beg, encourage, comfort, correct, rejoice, grieve from up close and personal. We should be reminding one another of the goodness of God and the dangers of sin. The other question is, do we need community when we're just down on our luck? Is it just selective in the hard times? No. In verse 13, it says, exhort one another how often? Tell me. What does it say? Verse 13, exhort one another how often? Say it. Every day. Every day. How often do you need believers in your circle? Every day. That's not me saying it. That's not me saying that. The Holy Spirit speaks. When we open this word, God speaks. Sin is a liar. We have to understand that sin is a liar. That's what it says, verse 13, that you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What does deceitfulness mean? It tricks you. It lies to you. It doesn't come blaring an air horn. Here we come. Don't be tempted. It deceives you. There's about 200 people in this room. 200 out of 200 of you are deceived by sin. Do you believe that? That's what it says. 200 out of 200 of you are deceived by sin in this room. And you cannot tell me that you believe that in one breath and then tell me you're a Sunday service only Christian in the next. Did you hear me? You can't say that you believe that and then think that coming in here on a Sunday morning and facing the same direction and saying, live and let live is obedience. You can't. You can't. Either that or you're a liar. You can't say that you believe that and believe otherwise at the same time. You need brothers and sisters to help us, each other, to see what we are blind to seeing. And I use the word blind because sin lies and it deceives and it manipulates and you need people in your life saying, brother, I see it and you don't. Sister, I see it and you don't. Whether that's a word of correction or a word of uplifting, you're beaten down. You need a brother and sister who says, you don't see it rightly. God doesn't hate you for that. You are forgiven, sister. Brother, God's grace abounds for you. Why are you downtrodden? You see how that, that is a, a sweet balm that goes both ways. Without community, you are a lone sheep surrounded by hungry wolves. And that is just the facts, man. You need to exhort one another. And you can't do that 
just here Sunday mornings. It's not possible. Third is to hold on. Hold on to the original confidence. The gospel commitment is what we're going to see. Hold on to the original confidence. Firm to the end. Verse 14 begins with the word for. The logic. Tell you what, let's read it. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. For. That word for, the logic of the argument is that those who are hardened or who become hardened give outward evidence that they are not and never have been genuine believers who share in Christ. This is not, please hear this, this is not talking about losing one's salvation. That is incredibly incompatible with Scripture. Here's a several passages. I'll just run them off real quick. John 10, 27 through 29. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them from my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Eternal security. Praise God. John 6, 39 and 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Praise God. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I'll raise him up on the last day. Philippians 1.6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. The author of Hebrews is not building some doctrine in this statement. It's a very simple, conditional statement. He's not trying to build a doctrine. He's making a very simple statement that genuine believers do not become hardened. Instead, they persevere. They endure. That is, they hold on to their original confidence firm to the end. And what is the confidence? That there is a Savior who died in your place that you could join him in his. The gospel. A gospel commitment. And that today and every day, we cling to that commitment. I'm going to say another thing now that I don't want to be misrepresented on, so please listen to what I'm about to say. We have a problem in churches like ours, SBC churches, Southern Baptist churches. There's a problem in our churches, and that is that we place too much hope, and maybe this is wider than us, I don't know, I just, this is my experience. We place too much hope in what happened when we prayed a prayer or walked an aisle or talked to the preacher. It can lead to confusion and discouragement later in life as we seek to pin down a time and a date. Now listen, that's not to say, I firmly believe that there is a moment, a transactional moment in history of salvation for all who believe, but we don't have to be able to pin down that moment in time to have timeless hope. Your hope is not in what you believed back then. Your hope is in what you believe today about what happened way before that 2,000 years ago. Was the moment in history important, the transaction? Yes, it was. Praise the Lord. But I promise you this. God is less concerned with whether you followed him back then than he is with whether you're following him today. That's the message of perseverance. What you professed once upon a time is absolutely meaningless if you do not continue to profess it today and tomorrow and the next day and every day. Do you hear me? We are not God's people by lineage. We are not God's people by moment in history, but by every day waking up and making him Lord and Savior. And we will falter and we will fail 
but our confidence is not in the fact that we did something back then. The confidence is in the fact that today we say, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And I, I can't trust in all these frames I lean on and say, this is a good work, this is a good work, but I failed here. Uh-oh, I guess I'm not. No, no, no. Is the work of Jesus sufficient? Trust in him each and every day. This is the task of endurance, of persevering. Israel missed this and did not find rest. If you miss this, you will fail to find eternal rest. And so my final question is this. What is your hope in? What is your hope in? He says, as long as today is called today. That's a way of him saying tomorrow is not promised. You could have a stroke in the middle of your sleep tonight and never wake up. You may get in a car accident on the way home and never breathe again. You could struggle with a massive aneurysm in a moment's glance. Gone. Where's your hope today? May it be in the Christ who took your place in death and emptied his grave so that you could take his place in life wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus, not the works of man. And if today you have never done that, let today be the day that you surrender all and give your life to Jesus.